This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, September the 2nd, 2021, and this is episode 2948 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, and that means it is time for an expert council Q&A show. Here's what I've got for you guys today. Um... <clears throat> Using milk cattle breed steers for beef production, like a Holstein. So um, there's a lot of operations out there that breed cattle for the milk industry, specific breeds that are for milk production. <clears throat> And a certain number of those calves are going to be steers or, or bulls, depending on how you let them grow up, right? Uh, they're going to be males. And despite what the uh, the gender uh, the gender neutral non-binary crowd wokeism thinks, if you try to milk a bull, you're going to find out real quick that there's a difference between men and women and male and female, and you ain't going to get no milk, and well, you're going to get a really happy or a really mad bull one way or the other. Well, because of this, some of them get sold off, you know. Uh, For maybe for breeding, but some of them just get sold off for meat. Well, do they produce good quality meat? Uh, Darby Simpson will weigh in on that. Is there an opportunity there? If you live especially near some place where you can buy them uh, at a, a, a seriously reduced rate over, let's say, a dedicated meat uh, breed calf. Uh, Sean Mills is going to talk to us about hybrid solar-first inverters. What is that? This is a really interesting subject. And I'll, I'll let Sean explain it to you, but it is it's for the person that wants to have grid power, wants to have solar power, but isn't concerned with pushing power back onto the grid and doesn't necessarily want to do it with uh, a large battery system. But maybe they do, uh, maybe they don't. It all depends, right? But it, the main purpose here is we want to be able to reduce our electric bill. That's the goal, and not unplug from the grid. Sean will talk about that. Paul Wheaton is going to talk about building a Wolfati which is kind of sort of like an underground house, but it's really not an underground house. Uh, it's an earth contact structure, and uh, a person wants to build one, and they have a question for Paul about uh, which side of the hill to put it on and climate and things like that. Really, really interesting subject to talk about there. Doc Bones, we're going we're gonna to make him try to figure some stuff out. It's more complicated than typical medical question. Uh, dealing with a child who has ADD, And to me, ADD doesn't necessarily have to be a problem, but if we add this other behavioral issue to it, it can be lying. Like lying with a straight face about, like, did this thing happen? No, it didn't. Or, or yes, it did, and the answer is no, it didn't. Uh, so we'll hear old Doc Bones on that one. John Puglianos, as we're talking about kids, let's talk about teaching young people to invest and, and value money properly and manage money. Nicole Sauce will talk about making a living with WordPress as a consultant or a developer, and I'll have a few additional thoughts on that. And then I have some stuff on cryptocurrency. It's going to be really, really brief, though. There's just a couple things happened like just today, uh, specific to Bitcoin, and one we talked about happening like two weeks ago. And, again, I know that sometimes you think, are you turning into the crypto show? And, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm a survival podcast. But we cannot ignore the future as preppers. We just can't. 
And the financial future of the world is being altered right now. And this is part of it. And ignoring it is, it, it will be, at, if it's not dangerous, it will at least be to your detriment. I'll put it that way. And then I, uh, I have our quote of the day that kind of ties in with why I chose our song of the day and some things I just want you to think about that ties into my Miyagi Mornings video today on could the United States break apart. And going back and looking at the 1980s and 90s and what happened with the Soviet Union, just some little historical perspective. We won't get into that subject because you'll either hear it tomorrow or you heard it today, depending on how you consume your Miyagi Mornings episodes. Uh, so we got all that. But the song of the day is going to be Watching the Wheels by John Lennon. I usually don't tell you that up front, but it's because I think it really can set a time in history if you're old enough. And then you realize that time really wasn't that long ago, but it, it was. And we are... In the words of our quote of the day author today, James Baldwin, trapped in history, and history is trapped in us. So I'm going to give us a little historical perspective at the end of today's show. With that, let's go ahead and dive headlong into it. Darby Simpson on using uh, milk cattle breed steers for beef production. Hey everybody, Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life. Back to answer another question that came in via email. And if you have a question like this that you would like answered in 10 minutes or less, feel free to shoot it to me, Darby at grassfedlife.co, and you might just hear it on the podcast, just like this question that comes in from John out near Sacramento, California. John asks, can Holstein steers make good grass-fed beef homestead beef cattle, and what considerations should be taken. little additional info, he says, we are in the process of purchasing a 10-acre property about an hour south of Sacramento. About eight acres, plus some of the neighbor's land, have been in hay production for some time, and besides the spraying, the land and soil are actually in great condition. We are located next to a dairy who makes and feeds silage. Would their steers make a good addition? We had planned to dedicate two acres to pumpkins and other seasonal market crops and seven acres to sheep and poultry, as that is our prior experience. Wanted to consider a steer or two as an alternative or add in with the sheep. Well, John, I got to tell you, I never met a cow I didn't want to eat. Uh, Holsteins, obviously, being bred for dairy, you know, are they the ideal... Uh, beef cattle, no, they're not. But their steers are sold off and, and used as beef animals all the time. Uh, because obviously steers don't make milk, and we got to do something with them. So a lot of times they're, as you know, sold off as bottle calves, um, and people will raise them up and, and use them as beef animals. And this is completely fine, uh, particularly if it's, If it's for a homestead thing, I think even to some extent, if you want to move this into a production thing, there's an opportunity there for that. Now, there are some, some specifics we want to get into here in a minute, but, you know, considerations, these are tall, leggy animals. They're not going to fatten out like my short, three-quarter sized black Angus cattle, right? Um, I've got a lot more grass here than, than you're going to have near Sacramento. So, you know, there are some considerations, but getting them from the guys next door, uh, is, is not a terrible idea. Um, and you know, to some degree, I mean, I, I don't feed silage 
but if it's true silage where that kernel of corn really is not developed and that corn's been cut and you're you're basically feeding them the grass plant I, you know I don't I don't have a huge issue with silage philosophically again it's not something we do here because we don't want to you know wrap that stuff or, or, or hold it, you know, in some big monster building uh, to, to keep it in that, that state where it's edible. Um, but, you know, that's an okay feed stuff um, in some instances. Now, of course, it's probably GMO corn, so I wouldn't be interested. But anyway, that's, that's kind of an aside. Um, the other consideration is, it, particularly if you're going to do 100% grass-fed, and I've, I've never done... Um, you know, dairy cattle. Now, a few years ago, I did get some. Uh, they were kind of a kind of a happy accident. A, a black Angus bull got loose and uh, got with some brown Swiss girls, and uh, lo and behold, uh, there were some brown Swiss black Angus crosses, and we actually got some of those steers. And I tell you what, that that beef was fantastic. It was delicious. Loved it. Sold really well. But they were big, lanky animals. They take longer. That's the point to finish on grass. You get over 30 months, you start running into some issues about, well, I can't keep the backbone, so I can't make T-bone steaks, can't make bone-in sirloin steaks. Uh, there are some rules like that that, that come down from, from the federal government, which I don't, I don't agree with. But if your butcher is following the rules and if they want to keep their licensing, they probably are, that would be another consideration. Um, mixing cattle with sheep is actually really great from a parasitic standpoint because the parasitic cycles break if they get into the wrong animal. Um, they also eat from opposite ends of the spectrum. And with seven acres-ish of grazing, like you've got enough to be dangerous. Like I think you could get two or three yearling steers out there and then the next year maybe add two or three more. You might be able to finish two or three of these guys, and maybe you keep one for your family. And if you're marketing all this other stuff, I tell you what. Now I don't know that I'd be trying to sell you know twenty five thirty dollar steaks per pound, but you could sell some stew meat, and you might be able to sell a few roasts, and you could sell a whole lot of hamburger that's priced in a niche where you've only got so much of it, right? So. This is what would be considered like a hold-on enterprise. It's a spinoff. So we only have so much ground beef, and it's 100% grass-fed, and it's chemical-free pasture, blah, blah, blah. Guess what? It's 14 15 bucks a pound. Is that expensive? Yes, but I've only got a couple hundred pounds of it to sell. So I can make some extra money here. Um, I, 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 with these steers next door, this is a godsend. I mean, it's like you lucked into this, and uh, congratulations. I, I'd be all over it. Like, I'd be all over it, man. Um, you know, if you want to start small and get one or two, whatever, I'd get two. Cows like a buddy. They really do. They pair off. Uh, so I'd get two, even though they'll be out there with the sheep. And, and you know, start managing them. See how it goes. Let them run with the sheep. Again, eating from offset into the, the, the spectrum there with the grasses. Breaks the parasitic cycle. A lot of bonuses there. I think it gives you a product, potentially, if you want it, uh, to, to move in to your sales stream with your, your vegetable crops and your lamb and your poultry. Um, I really don't see a whole lot of downside here. 
Now, if you do want to try and put more weight on them, you might, if you want to go 100% grass-fed, there are some tricks we can do. Um, you know, you can use like a safe form of molasses and you can mix that up with alfalfa pellets or really intense alfalfa hay. Um, there are some, uh, you know, American Grass-Fed Association feed stuffs out there that it's insane, like a million calories in a pound of food. It's just nuts. Some of the stuff, some of the things you can feed your cows to help them fatten up. If you feel like you need to supplement to do that, because they're going to have the frame, but they they really need to, to fill out. So that would be something else to consider. And um, obviously, you know, that's an expense. And you got to figure all this out in Excel. But I, I, I'd i say go for it. Give it a shot. I mean, really, what have you got to lose? I mean, if they end up kind of spindly, just turn it all into hamburger, right? I mean, keep some stew meat, keep some roast, whatever. Test it, see how it is. But, hey, hamburger. You, you can sell that all day long. Um, a lot of a lot of guys around here do that with their old dairy cows, and uh, they are 100% grass fed. And they'll say, "Hey, 100% grass fed ground beef," and it's only you know five six bucks, and you know it's hard for somebody like me to compete with that uh, when our ground beef is like double uh, because they got an old dairy cow and they're just trying to get the last little bit of value out of it that they can. But anyway, John, that's what I got for you. I hope you found that helpful. Uh, punch the accelerator, dude. Go for it. Let me know how that works out. I'd actually really like to get some follow-up from you. Uh, if and when you do this, maybe shoot me some photographs. Let me know how it goes. I think this is an interesting model where beef isn't the primary enterprise, but it can be a spinoff enterprise. Um, would like to see how it turns out for you. So uh, if you enjoyed listening to this, check out our other resources at grassfedlife.co. And again, if you've got a question like this that you would like for me to answer, shoot it to me, Darby at grassfedlife.co. You might just hear it on the podcast, just like John's question. Uh, also, be certain to check out all the resources we have on grassfedlife.co. There are some free resources out there, like how to select a butcher, how to start your profitable mini farm, and there are some paid-for resources, anything from, like, homestead pastured poultry, like John talks about. Maybe you want to scale that up. We've got a professional pastured poultry course. Maybe you want to go all in. We've got a how, to, how do I go farm full-time and make a living course out there. So be sure and check out those resources. As always, really enjoy answering these questions. Please keep them coming. As always, everyone have a wonderful day and take care. So I guess when you look at meat quality production with something like cattle, you have to look at it two ways. One is, is it really good to eat? And two is, is the yield going to get you a good ROI? And the way you would be doing this, I agree with Darby, it's like a gift. Like it doesn't make any sense not to do it. You're going to make your pasture better. You're going to basically eat for free and make a little bit of money. And to me, when people say, you know, like, well, this breed or whatever – I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a hunter. And, and I understand there's maybe a couple antelope that are not real good to eat because they have, like, bug repellent that exudes through their body or something. I think I think it's uh, water buck or, or, or like that. But to me, I mean, I, I think it, you'd be hard-pressed to find an animal that's either a browser or a grazer with four legs and fur. And if you killed it and prepared it right, I wouldn't eat it. I've eaten... You know, white-tailed deer, I've eaten elk, 
Uh, I've eaten pronghorn antelope. Uh, I've eaten a uh, deer called saka deer, which are uh, uh, they're from like kind of Japan and Asia. They look like miniature elk. I've eaten fallow deer. I've eaten axis deer. I've eaten a bunch of different types of uh, antelope and things like that that are you know from African game. Uh, I've eaten uh, naga, I guess is what they call them. I've eaten orcs. I, you know, I, I've eaten buffalo um, in the form of like buffalo, like like real buffalo, like uh, Cape buffalo, and I've eaten buffalo in the form of like American bison. And and I just haven't yet found a critter with red meat that that lives on grass and or browse uh, and mass drop that I won't eat. So to me. Bring it on, man. And if I were, you know, buying other stuff from you and you had some of this available, I would certainly be willing to buy it as well. Uh, next up, we have a question for Sean Mills on solar energy and something called a hybrid inverter. Hey, guys, it's Sean Mills with Hack My Solar, and I've got another question here uh, for the expert council. This one is, are there any 240-volt inverters that can use grid power when available? but not turn off when the grid is down. Details, I'd like to install around 6 kilowatts of ground-mounted solar panels and have that be supplemented by grid power to my house. I'm not interested in selling power back to the grid. Most inverters I've seen are either off-grid and rely on batteries to fill in gaps where solar is not providing enough power or are grid-tied and forced to go offline when the grid goes down. I'm in Michigan with natural gas heat and hot water, but air conditioning doubles my energy use in the summer, so I like to use grid power for that. Any thoughts? Eric from Michigan. Hey, Eric. Yeah, what you're looking for is called a hybrid inverter. Um, a grid-tied inverter takes solar power and converts it to AC for use in your home, offsetting your energy use, and sometimes a power company will buy it back. An off-grid inverter takes DC battery power and converts it to AC power for the home to run on. A hybrid inverter uh, is the best of both worlds and acts as a load center with grid power, solar power, generator, and battery power inputs all in one device. And it will use whatever sources are available to it regardless of what that source is. Almost all hybrid inverters have what's called solar-first capability meaning that it will use all of the solar energy and supplement that with the grid as well as keeping your batteries topped off. And then, then if the grid goes down, it will run the house off the batteries, although it's up to you to manage the load side so that you don't drain the batteries too quickly. Now, it sounds like what you're kind of trying to do is have solar and grid power but no batteries. Um you can do that. There are a couple grid tie inverters that will allow you to use at least a portion of your solar energy that you're generating uh, if the grid is down. But in in my opinion, uh, even a very small battery bank um, would you know it would extend obviously the capability of the hybrid inverter significantly. Um, and if you're already putting in the solar and the inverter and having an electrician come out and a per getting permits and having a generation meter or a two-way meter, whatever your electrical company is going to require for this to be a grid-tied system, uh, the amount of additional cost of just literally throwing a battery or two uh, in next to the inverter is going to be minimal, and I think that you're going to get a lot of use out of that. So 
while there is the capability to do this without batteries, I wouldn't spring for the hybrid inverter without also getting at least a little bit of battery backup to go on with it. Uh, so, um, trusted names for hybrid inverters include the, include Outback, Soul Arc, and Solar Edge. Uh, and I have seen some rave reviews of the GrowWatt hybrid inverters, uh, which can be had for about a third of the cost of any of the others when you can find them. But I am not sure if the GrowWatt inverter is UL listed. Uh, the National Electric Code requires that you use a UL listed electrical component if one is available. Uh, so if there's a possibility to buy a UL listed hybrid inverter and you want to use one that's not UL listed, your electrical inspector is not going to pass you. Um, it doesn't matter that the original manufacturer from China will sell you the same item for a quarter of the cost and cut out the middlemen and, and the logos. Uh, all that matters is that the seller has got that UL sticker on there. So uh, if you're looking into some of those hybrid inverters that, you know, are coming straight from China uh, with different branding. You just want to make sure you've got that UL uh, listing or else you're going to fail inspection. Uh, that's one thing to remember. You always have to uh, run by the grid owner's rules when you're going to tie to the grid. Um, another option for you here, it would be probably about the same cost, but less headache, but also less resiliency uh, would be to do a behind-the-meter system. So you've got basically an off-grid system behind your grid-tied system with a switch to be able to throw, you know, go from one system to the other. So um, have uh, have some people that have been interested in that in the past when hybrid inverters were really expensive. Um, generally, those hybrid inverters costs have come down enough to where it makes sense to just go straight with the hybrid system if you're going to be paying for the rest of it. So hope that helps, and good luck getting that 6K system in. Uh, that's going to knock out a good chunk of your power bill, and I'm excited, especially up there in Michigan. All right, guys, keep the questions coming, and I'll keep getting them answered. Thanks. Good stuff there, and, and, and I have to agree that if I was going through all this trouble, you know, I know that battery backup can be expensive but the gear side is pretty much the same it's the batteries themselves and man you can put in a hell of a decent battery backup for a thousand bucks and i think once you're committed to this like that extra money if there's any way you can scrape it up probably should be spent i agree with sean next up we got a waffity question and if it's a waffity question it has to go to the guy that came up with the idea of the waffity in the first place paul wheaton Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with an expert counsel question from Logan. Logan asks, should I build my Wafati on a south-facing slope? Uh, he goes on to say, I live in North Alabama, and the summers here are extra hot and extremely humid. About 50 to 90% humidity and 80 to 98 degrees for six months out of the year. Our winters are mild about three months. My Wafati will meet all of your requirements, except it will have a wood floor and a crawl space. I wanted to build on a north-facing slope, as you suggest, but thought it might help to do the opposite in a warmer climate. Plus, I won't need to worry about solar gains because I'll have my pebble-style rocket mass heater. I'm open to all other suggestions on ways to cut down on air conditioning. 
Thank you for all that you do. If it wasn't for you, I would have never known about Jack Spearco or the late Mike Ayler. So, first, uh, I'm glad my efforts are connecting you to first-class resources. Now, let's talk about placing a wafati to keep things cooler. First, I gotta say, uh, that when we had the hottest summer ever recorded here in Montana this last summer, a lot of people gathered at our larger wafati. When it was 104 degrees outside, it was 74 degrees inside. And that was after more than a dozen days of being over 100. Uh, I like to think that most of the power of the wafati comes from the thermal mass combined with the use of windows, windows that you can open and close, and making the inhabitants comfortable. When the outside temperature is more comfortable than the inside temperature, the inhabitants open the windows. In time, the mass temperature is set to what most the inhabitants find to be comfortable. As the years pass, it gets better and better. But you are asking about which slope to build your wafati. A lot of people don't have a choice, but it sounds like you do. To keep things generally cooler, I would try to steal ideas from our freezer wafati stuff. In which case, we're talking about a north-facing slope. Uh, so the same slope that we use for trying to warm a structure. But you might obstruct the solar gain with trees and earthworks. You might shape your uphill food forests and hugel cultures to direct cold air masses towards your wafati. As for humidity... We have recently finished building our first ever Wafati greenhouse, uh, a truly passive greenhouse, and condensation is a big concern. We have installed a thermal well and put a destratification pipe in it. So this is a piece of well casing that is stuck into the ground. It's about 17 feet deep, uh, and the destratification pipe is just uh, a piece of poly pipe, one-inch poly pipe that goes down to the bottom of that well, and then we've got a copper pipe that's been blackened sitting in the glass of the greenhouse so that when it gets heated up, it acts as a thermosiphon and pulls air from the bottom of the uh, uh, thermal well, which makes it so that the air that's inside the greenhouse eventually gets moved down inside the thermal well where it's much cooler. So uh, then the water there can condense. And so we've got a a little device down there that's kind of like a uh, wireless uh, uh, thermometer and a hygrometer. So we're also testing the, um, the, the humidity. And it's saying that it's 100% humid all the time. All right. As the air circulates down in there, the air in the greenhouse becomes drier. Now, granted, we built this, but this is an experiment and we don't know the results yet, but so far it's looking very promising. All right, now let's talk about your mention of a pebble-style rocket mass heater. My original thoughts a few years ago were that a heater in a wafati is not necessary. But I remember getting a fever last winter, and I just couldn't seem to get warm. So I put a little extra wood on the rocket mass heater for a day, much better. So now I'm kind of thinking that it's like, Always good to have uh, a rocket mass heater inside of Wafati just for those times when it's like I need it to get to be 10 degrees warmer just for a few days. So um, there you go. That's uh, that's my answer. If you got any more questions, uh, send a, send an email to Jack. 
Uh, thanks, Jack. Thanks, Logan. And uh, guys that are not real familiar with Paul, let me return the favor. Check out Paul Wheaton. You can find his main empire by going to permies.com or richsoil.com. And he does have a really great write-up on Wafati's. If you're like, what is this Wafati stuff he's talking about? I don't understand. Go read this article. It's a very long article. And it's based on the work done by Mike Eller, who has two really great books that are still out. He, he passed away a number of years ago. But one's on underground houses and one's on underground greenhouses. But the big mistake Mike made was calling them underground because the first thing you have to explain to you is they're not actually underground. They're in-ground is one way to look at it. But uh, Paul's done a lot of work with this, and the, the page that he has this on is richsoil.com forward slash wafati.jsp. But it's in, it's in the show notes today. And wafati is W-O-F-A-T-I. That's, that's a, it's an acronym. Anyway, with that, let's go on to our next one. We have one now, Doc Bones about kiddo with uh, some ADD issues. But the bigger issue really is lying. <laughs> Doc, what do you got on us? Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the brand new fourth edition, fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, now available at Amazon and at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Jessica, who writes, My question is how to deal with a child who lies about completing schoolwork. Hmm. Background. I homeschooled my nine-year-old son while working full-time outside of the home, so there are many days where he needs to complete some sort of schoolwork on his own. These are things that are not time-intensive. They may be some sort of, let's say, watch a video, fill out a worksheet, practice on piano lessons, or do a little research on a project, that kind of thing. Nothing he can't complete on his own, but several times he has told me they are complete, and I go back to check them the next day or the day after when we do our next sit-down school day, and they are not done, so we can't move on with whatever the project is. I have done the normal takeaway of privileges, computer, TV, Xbox, playing time, that kind of thing, and it does not seem to register. He really doesn't care that those things have been taken away. It's been suggested to me that maybe there's something he doesn't like about the task, and that's why I'm getting pushback and lying. We've had discussions between the two of us about why this is happening and what the consequences are, and he has no real answer, but we still seem to have a little issue with it. He doesn't lie to us about other things, so I don't understand why he's lying about the schoolwork. Any suggestions? Jessica. Jessica, I'm just an old country doctor, but it doesn't take a child psychiatrist to know that lying is something that concerns a great many parents. We want our children to be honest, especially with us, but all kids lie to some extent. There are times when a lie may even be a reasonable option, such as maybe to spare someone's feelings, like when your child visits a friend's home for a meal but doesn't care for the food. It's our job to help our kids understand the importance of honesty. Being trustworthy is the key to solid friendships, trusting romantic relationships, and academic and occupational success. Honesty is the best policy. But before we see every stretch of the truth as an indication that your kid is going to end up in prison, it's important to understand what's behind the lies. Kids aren't born with a moral code. It's something they sort of figure out, and kids most of the time want to figure it out and want to have a good moral code. They watch adults constantly to see what they're supposed to do and how to face the world. The need for truth-telling and the ability to understand lying are things that kids should grow into. 
A kid your child's age probably already has developed an understanding of what it means to lie. If they've been raised in a home where there are clear rules about the importance of telling the truth, they often do their best to comply. The fact that your child's lies are specifically about homework and nothing else leads me to wonder if your child has the tools that make homework doable. Does he have a vision problem, for example? Has he had a vision test? It was around your kid's age that my eyesight worsened to the point I needed glasses to see the blackboard at school. Getting glasses helped a lot. These days, there are even procedures that correct vision problems, although they're usually done on adults. I had it done, and now I have the eyes of an eagle, a really, really old eagle. Now, you haven't raised any concerns about this, but there's always a question as to whether your child may have a learning disability like attention deficit disorder or dyslexia. These are some things that might be reasonable to check. Kids with an attention deficit exhibit certain signs. They often fail to give close attention to details and make careless mistakes in schoolwork and with other activities. They often have trouble holding attention on tasks or even play activities. They often don't seem to listen when spoken to directly. They often don't follow through on instructions, get sidetracked or distracted a lot. They often avoid, dislike, or are reluctant to do tasks that require mental effort, like homework. And they're often forgetful about or lose things necessary for tasks and activities, like maybe school materials. If this sounds like your child, he might merit an evaluation for this problem. Sometimes, rarely, lying is an indication of an emerging mental issue like a conduct disorder. These are the kids who often become so adept at lying that it's almost a reflex. Assuming your kid doesn't have these problems, maybe has trouble understanding the work without your help. Sometimes kids need a teacher or a parent to guide them through things like, let's say, fractions. Kids hate things that they fail at, so better to lie. First, Jessica, it's important to stay calm, and it seems that you have. Losing it takes the focus off the issue and puts it onto your anger and frustration. Before dealing with it, go to your happy place. Once you're serene, talk to the child and always give him a second chance to tell you the truth. You say that you notice the lie a day or two after. It's got to be difficult homeschooling and working a job outside of the home, especially if you don't have help. I think it's important to ascertain the lie as soon as possible. Just ask to see the homework you assigned for that day on that day and then talk about what happened. It may be necessary to set homework time around when you're physically at home, even if you're tired. That way you know your kid is in the homework area, can concentrate on it, and stay on task. Plus, he can ask for your help if he needs it. As for privileges, perhaps you should restrict them until schoolwork time is over and he's finished all of his assignments. Check his work right afterwards, at least until you see him routinely completing his homework and feel that you can trust him to do it. You say that TV, phone, and computer time don't seem to matter to him. That seems unusual to me. What does he do when he can't use these things? It may be something to think about. Jessica, it's a tough situation you're in, and you may have to put in extra time to make sure homework gets done and your child progresses academically. If it's too much and all fails, he may need additional resources to evaluate and get to the bottom of the problem. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you support our mission to put a medically prepared person in every family, please check out our entire line of medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So I want to try to simplify this as to another way to look at it. So he doesn't want to do it. 
I think it's that's my gut. He just doesn't want, and it doesn't sound like these are really complicated things. These are things like watching a video. Like you can literally put that on and half-ass watch it. But he he so doesn't want to do it. He won't even do that. And it would be easier for him if he did this, but he don't want to do it. The lying is simply. It, there's no way when he tells you that lie, he thinks that he's going to get away with it. He, he you've, you've now established a pattern that I will have to deal with this, but if I lie about it, I don't have to deal with it now. And I think it's that, to me, and I know you oversimplify things sometimes, but I mean, I think it's that simple that I don't want to do it. Lying is my method of punting it. And so, if I cannot do it now by lying about it, and I would say that there is some mechanism that you know he lied eventually. And what I would be doing is I would be saying, did you do it? Yes, I did. Whatever your mechanism of determining, however you're determining later on that he didn't do it, you need to, you need to hold him accountable now. And then you need to make him do it now so that the tactic no longer works. You have to disrupt the tactic. Here's a, a, an example of something that just happened recently with my grandson and, and how we used a, a, it's the same but different, a similar tactic. So I went out, and he was arguing with his grandma. I said, what's the problem? She said, well, he is having trouble with some, some math skill. And Excellus University is really great. They have, like, if you're having trouble with anything, you hit help. And then help goes over it again a different way so that you can learn how to do it. Well, he, the video was three minutes long. He didn't want to watch the three-minute video. It was too long. Even though he didn't know how to do it, he wanted to guess at it. Well, that doesn't work. So, now you understand, I've, I've dealt with this a few times, and... The, the exact same tactic may not work with every kid. My grandson has a pretty decent sense of humor. So I made him stand in the corner like you do in like kindergarten, first grade, second grade, like little kids have to do when they're talking in class or whatever. And I made him stand in the corner for, you guessed it, three minutes. And then I made him watch the help video for three minutes. So this took six minutes of his time that he didn't want to spend doing it instead of three. And that's now kind of the de facto rule. If you avoid a thing that needs to get done, however long it takes to do that, you're going to spend that much time, plus you're going to spend an equal amount of time doing something else you don't want to do. And so it sounds like what you're using here is to take away. If you don't do this, then you're not allowed to do that. And he's making a calculation. Kids are smarter than we think. He's making a simple calculation. I don't want to do this. And if she takes away my Game Boy or whatever the hell it is, like I'm willing to make that trade. He doesn't care because he's already factored in the calculus, right? He's doing the math. This is what will happen if I don't do this, and he's deciding, maybe pretty quick, maybe off the cuff, maybe there is some regret, but not a lot. Yeah, well, she'll yell at me, and I'll have to do it later, and I won't be able to play with this thing. Where I think additive works, additive of adding more work that you already didn't want to do, And then the other thing that works that's additive is adding some benefit that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And people would call that bribery. I call it, like, motivating a child. So that can work, too. And I think the other thing is, like, 
the number one thing that made me like this as a kid, and I was like this as a kid a lot, there was a lot of stuff I didn't do. A lot of stuff, and I never did it, and you, nobody ever made me do it. And you may have someone that, you may, there may, you may end up surrendering here on some level, but you don't want to surrender without trying. But the main reason I wouldn't do a thing was, one, I didn't want to, but two, I didn't see the benefit. It didn't matter, if it didn't matter, if I didn't want to do it, and I didn't see what I was going to get out of it. Why am I doing this? What do I get if I do this? And I don't mean like, again, a bribe. I mean like, why am I doing this? Well, because you have to to get through school. That's not going to work. It didn't work on me. What will the, what will knowing this do for me in my life? One of the conversations I have with my grandson all the time now, uh, more, I'm starting to have it with my granddaughter as she's getting older. I had it with my son a lot as he was growing up. My job is to be removing rules from you Every year. I should have less rules for you every year. But the only way that's going to happen is you provide discipline for yourself. My grandson's 10, and I said to him the other day, we were talking about this, and I said, if you if you just don't do a thing you shouldn't do, do I need a rule for you that says that you don't you're not allowed to do it? And he said, no, of course not. Well, there you go. So, I mean, you have to help him understand what he gets out of this, why it's better for him to do this. And it's not because you say so, and it's not because school says so. You have to explain it. And this is why there were certain places where it broke down with me. Like, you've got to learn this advanced calculus. I already have enough math credits to graduate, and I don't care. Well, you're going to use this in the future. No, I'm not. And I knew I was being lied to. So, you know, there is a point where you have to, you have to connect the thing to something relevant in the future. And and because I said so or whatever, with this type of kid, it sounds like he's a lot like I was as a kid. It, it doesn't work. They have to understand what it means for them, how it will benefit them. And then, again, you know, sometimes you have to pick your battles here because I was the kind of kid, my thought was, if well, if I ever do need it, I'll learn it then. And that's a hard thing to argue with. Um, I wish I could be more help. Let's take another one. This one on... Um, WordPress development and consulting for a full-time income with Nicole Sauce. Well, hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Hollow Roast Coffee, and I've got a question in from James. James says, I've got a question, okay, a couple, for Nicole Sauce on WordPress consulting. Is it realistic to expect to build a lucrative full-time income building and maintaining WordPress websites? James, you asked me like six questions in this, by the way. I'm not going to be able to get to all of them in 10 minutes, but I hope this gets you started. And once you get started, I think you'll find you can answer your own questions on this topic. So the first question is, is it realistic to expect to build a lucrative full-time income in the field of website development using WordPress? Dude, I don't know. Is it? Yep. I'm like your little sister. Just spitting words right back in your face. That's my job on this particular segment. The answer to that question is it all depends on if you make that happen. And that's going to boil down to, do you have the skill, the website development eye, the ability to sell website consulting services to people, and the drive to get it done? There, The market is plenty big, so the opportunity is definitely there. And knowing you and knowing that when you put your mind to something, you can get it done, because I do, I saw your last name, so I know who you are. I know you can get this done if you decide. So the bigger question is here is, do you want 
to do what it takes to turn your WordPress consulting and development business into a full-time lucrative income. And then from there, you should be asking yourself, how am I going to get that done? (laughs) It's that simple. So the other questions I'm going to answer, I'm choosing a couple more questions. One, how do I start with finding clients? I find with website development that the best place to start is define what what problem you're solving and who you're solving it for. Because what a client with a large corporation and a website with a portal for employees and other complex things needs from a website developer is very different than somebody who says, you know what? I want to roast coffee and sell it and I need a shopping cart and I need to be able to put products up and get this done. And I haven't built a website yet. Those are two very different scales of thing. So when you look at developing your product and service offering for website development, look at where your sweet spot is. What am I best at in the website development world? Is it the building of the sites? Is it the organizing of the communications and marketing for the sites? Is it the visual piece? And then in my network, if I'm going to outsource people uh, to people for things that are not my sweet spot, what does that look like? And how does that all work into if I'm doing fresh websites for startup businesses, website improvements as people grow, or large corporate, corporate websites with complex needs? If you define that, from there you can define who's most likely to buy your service And then you can look at why they will make a decision to work with you and who these people are and where they are. And that starts you along the the process of just finding your clients. Once you find one client, by the way, ask them for referrals and hopefully you will get other clients. Because I find in the website development world, you know, sure, you can have a website up saying these are the services I offer. And sometimes you get prospects from that, but I've found referrals are your best and most powerful tool for getting project after project. And then depending on the services you're offering, some people are repeat clients. Like I have several clients that have have my company do things on a regular basis for them to help them maintain their website because they simply don't want to. Another thing to know about the website development world, though, is that it's getting easier and easier to build a website with some of these other tools outside of WordPress. And that is something that I never compete against. If somebody says, I want to go do a Squarespace website, okay, go do that. Usually that person then hires me later to move them off Squarespace manually <laughs> onto a WordPress website. That, that's what usually happens. But having the argument about it or having the persuasion discussion about it at the front end, I have found is counterproductive And some people build awesome looking Squarespace websites and never leave. They figure out the tool and it works for them. And that's fine. I think my point with that is if you're if you're competing against self-build site cheapest possible option, that's probably not the best first step towards making a full-time income building WordPress websites. Better is to find people who don't want to mess with it or who don't have a good visual eye. Because if you do not have a a good visual eye and you build a Squarespace site, it can still look terrible. And that's part of a differentiator that as a website developer, you can bring to the table. How to price services? 
I don't know what you're offering. I don't know how you should price it. I can tell you this. If you are tracking how much resource you put into projects that you have estimated, then you can go back and decide if your pricing was right. You can look at competition and see how much they price it at. But I find in the website development world, it is better to add some to every estimate to cover your butt than to go with like, I think this is going to take me 10 hours. I like to make approximately this much per 10 hours and then set it there because inevitably something comes up that can really bite you in the butt and then it takes 20 hours and you just made half of what you were anticipating to make. Which brings me to the last question I'm going to answer for you. Any pitfalls to look out for? The first pitfall that's most important to avoid revolves around clear communication in your estimates about and contracts about what you're building, what they get in exchange for the service, and where additional fees apply. Put a lot of thought into that on your projects because scope creep is often happens in website development. And if you do not have a very clear scope written up and do not have a method in place for informing them when scope creep starts happening, you can end up in a situation where you've bid out a $1,500 website that took you $10,000 worth of resources or the customer's mad. So look, go find some web developer friends, look at how they do scopes, like scope out projects, learn from them, and then really put a lot of thought into how the contracts and estimates look so it's clear. Because what I have found is when I leave anything ambiguous or am unclear in my communication with the customer, expectations of what will happen look differently from both of our perspectives. So the more time I spend having a clear list, while it may seem very clerical or unnecessary, it's absolutely necessary. It's kind of like good fences make good neighbors. Clear communication and contracts make the project go better for everybody involved. Learn about hosting and make sure if you're outsourcing the hosting of the websites, which you should totally do, probably if you're starting up, is done through a host that you can trust so you're not up in the middle of the night doing hosting support. And then... Be very careful about getting in over your head. If somebody comes to you with something that's that you've never done before and you bid it out because you want to do it, let them know, you know, I've not done a membership portal, for example. And this will be my first membership portal. I have these following things in place, but it may take me longer than I expect. And because it's my first time, I'm offering you this introductory rate of whatever, while you learn the process. And that's how you're able to scope that out for your next membership portal. I hope this helps you get started. Your other questions about any skills you should learn or any of those other things, I think that will come clear as you narrow down what you're offering, who you're targeting, where they are, and and how to communicate with them. The other things will become clear, including your pricing. If you do decide to go down this route, let me know because I am always looking for partners in the WordPress development arena. Guys, if you have questions about WordPress or home food preservation or coffee or small business marketing stuff, let me know. Send those questions to Jack with TSPC expert Nicole Sauce in the subject line. Make it a great week. All right, good stuff from Nicole. I could climb up on the top rope and drop a couple elbows myself in that world, but I won't. Uh, we'll move on to some th some things I want to talk about. I want to talk a little bit about crypto. If it's not your thing, don't worry. This segment will be short, and I mean really short, 
I want to talk about a little historical perspective when we do the song of the day at the end of the show, so I don't need this one to go long at all. I just want you guys to know something, or several things that have, have happened in the last couple of days that specifically involve Bitcoin and are bigger news than a lot of things that happened that, that, that seem to have a much bigger impact in the immediate space than, than, than this is doing. So this morning the news was that Twitter has confirmed that they are going to implement tipping using Bitcoin across the Lightning Network on the Twitter platform. And so what that basically means is 200 million people without asking for it, are about to get a Bitcoin address. Let me say it again. 200 million people, without asking for it, are about to get a Bitcoin address. And when that Bitcoin starts flying around there and people start realizing how easy it actually is to use, that's going to make an incredible impact. In fact, I think it was two weeks ago, maybe it was three now, that I had the gentleman from Start9.com on, and we were talking about running your own Lightning nodes on their on their embassy server and what have you. And when we were discussing all this, he mentioned that possibility. And I believe I said something to the effect of, and if that happens, if Jack Dorsey puts a Lightning address on every Twitter account, and you haven't bought any Bitcoin by that point, you're going to want to hang yourself. And when I shared it on social media today, I repeated that quote, and I said, please lock your boat, your, your belts and ropes up for a while. Now, here's the good news. Since it's just saying we're going to do it and it hadn't happened yet, the real impact of it has not been felt. It, it, I don't think it's, it's had an impact on the price at all. But that's one of those things that, like, the market actually should be responding to that a lot more forcefully then Elon Musk tweeting, hey, I like Bitcoin now, we bought some, and you can pay for a Tesla with it. How many people are going to go out and buy a Tesla And if, if it, it, you know, in the next year? It ain't $200 million. And of the people that do buy a Tesla, how many are going to go out and pay for it with Bitcoin or, or anything that's crypto just because they'll accept it? And the answer is a hell of a lot less than $200 million, a very small portion of the total. That, the actual impact there was the Musk name, the Tesla name, and that they put some capital into Bitcoin. It's, it's, it's a small thing compared to 200 million users all of a sudden having a Bitcoin wallet. That's huge. <clears throat> a bank came out. I don't remember which bank or where it was. It's a fairly small one, but it's the first one, the first chartered uh, bank in the United States to officially offer custodial services for Bitcoin. Now, what that means is, yeah, you can buy Bitcoin, but your bank will hold it for you as, their, as you being their customer in that bank, accessible to all. I put that out today on social media, and I got a bunch of the Bitcoin cult telling me, no thanks, uh, not your keys, not your coins. But I know all this. You're not understanding the point. The point is, when you it, once one bank does a thing, other banks are going to start doing the thing. And when you get to a point where the average person can log into their bank account to pay their bills and it says, invest in Bitcoin, and they can say, well, I, I can do that now? It's going to get a legitimacy in their minds that it doesn't have yet. And that's another, Michael Saylor calls these walls of money. It's a great way to look at it. That's another wall of money 
that can now get at Bitcoin that previously, sure it could have if the person would have set up a PayPal account and linked their bank account to it, or you know, set up a Coinbase account and linked their bank account to it, or a Binance account and linked their bank and did KYC. But people right now don't really, like I'm saying the average person doesn't trust giving all that information to a crypto exchange, but they give it to their bank. I get people all the time pissed at me. You told me to join Coinbase, and now if I'm going to buy coins there, they want my ID, and they want my bank account number, and they want, of course they do. They don't want to get arrested. They don't want to go to Club Fed. They have to do KYC. And, like, you gave your bank all that information, and you didn't even think about giving it to the bank because it's a bank account, right? So think about how many people will all of a sudden say, oh, this is okay now. Because it's in my it's in my you know Bank of America or whatever Chase or whatever, it's going to happen. Number two is that's not even the big reason these banks want custodianship. They offer custodianship to like all their their uh, their like uh, retail level customers. No, you, you understand that if you MicroStrategy right Michael Saylor's company, Tesla Elon Musk company, they hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet as a public company. They are not going to hold that money in their own custody with their own private keys at all. They're not going to do that. A company, a corporation is not going to do that. They're not worried about trying to hide what they have. They're a public company. They have to report all their assets So they're going to use a custodianship with some form of financial institution. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying they're going to. So you have the bank starting to come into this while pretending they're against it because they want to provide custodianship services for Bitcoin so they can make a ton of money off this for institutions at all different levels, including smaller ones. They want to be able to provide it through retirement accounts, IRAs, that are then packaged together and provided to a small company with 50 employees. You, you start to understand how this all fits together. So we've got banks coming out and doing this now. And, and there's, just, there's just a lot of the things. Sometimes I feel like the emperor in uh, Star Wars, right? Everything is happening as I have foreseen it. Except you don't have to be the emperor with Jedi powers, dark side or light side, doesn't matter, to foresee this. All you have to do is look at what's on the ground here and, and what is happening all around it. You have all of these governmental agencies, giant banks, etc., basically crapping on it. But all these giant institutions that are tied in with these people slowly sticking their finger in the pie and pulling out their own plums or cherries or whatever the pie is made out of. In this case, Bitcoin berries, right? So you're not going to have banks that are part of the banking system entering into to, to approval process so they can provide custodial services for Bitcoins if they're actually going to get rid of Bitcoin. You're not going to have Jack Dorsey, one of the richest people on the freaking planet, and his people integrating Bitcoin payments and tipping to their 200 million user base if the Fed's going to you know, put the clamp kibosh down on it. 
Now, I do think there will be more and more oversight. One of the jackasses from the SEC today basically said crypto won't last long without regulation. You guys need us. Are you going to fall? You're going to fall apart without us. You know, the, the the space 12 years ago didn't exist. Some cypherpunks got together on a a chat board, basically a message board, led by some cat or group of cats named Satoshi, came up with the first cryptocurrency. It was said it was nothing. It was vaporware. It didn't do anything. It was stupid. No one should ever do it. You're going to lose your money. It's a Ponzi scheme, blah, 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 blah. Twelve years later, the space is $2.5 trillion frickin' dollars. It was all done with no assistance from government whatsoever. None. The only thing government has done since it started was impede its growth. That's it. You've been in the way, but now you think we need you to help us. Well, they're going to help, and that's not going to really help, but in some ways it may. Because when it gets the blessing, oh, you can own this, many more people will, and you still have that limited quantity. What I'm saying, and I've been saying this for years, is this is the first thing like this in living history And it may be the first time ever, really, that the average person has had an opportunity to front-run the institutions. I think we're entering the final phase of that. I think we're entering the final phase of that. I think that a lot of things that people look at now and go, boy, that's really expensive, are going to be like, wow, that was, I should have, man. I, because I'm just thinking of how many people told me that, like, I missed the opportunity at $300, $600, $1,100, $3,000. Right? And even, even people that were saying that when it was up to like 12 grand the first time it got up that high. So, see, look, it crashed. Okay. Right? And then I, I just, it's one more appeal to you guys to really think about what you're turning away from here um, because this won't go away. This is not going to go away, it's not going to disappear, it's not going to zero, but a lot of those altcoins are. You got If it's not Bitcoin or Ethereum, it's a crapshoot, guys. That doesn't mean you shouldn't play craps a little bit, too, but Bitcoin and Ethereum are the, are the future of economics and the mechanism of economics. Bitcoin is the money, and layered technology on top of Bitcoin and Ethereum and Ethereum-like technology are the mechanism by which Money and value and product and tokenization of assets will move. And you can ignore it, but it's going to hurt. It's gonna, every year it'll hurt a little bit more. Every year. There was a guy, I can't remember who the guy was, but the dude, you know, the Mr. Woolworth, right? The guy that started Woolworth's store. Um, he worked in another store. And they had a bunch of stuff that wasn't selling, so he set up a table, and everything on the table was either five cents or ten cents. And they sold like everything they put on that table sold, and and a lot of it was still making money because this was a long time ago. And this you know Woolworth was a very young kid, and uh, he went to his his the store owner, it was like a one location store, and tried to sell him on. The whole store should be like a five and ten store, or at least we should like a whole section of the store. And God basically argued with him and argued. And eventually, Woolworth saved up enough money, went out, and started started his own store, called it Woolworth. It started out as a five and ten, turned into this massive, massive entity. 
and Woolworth became you know multimillionaire and whatever. And the I can't again I can't remember the name of the guy he worked for that turned him down on this, but he said every minute I spent arguing with him cost me a million dollars. History often rhymes. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up by reminding you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I do not have an item of the day for you today. I have instead a tip, and it's one I brought you not too long ago, but I need to, like, probably at least once a quarter remind you of this. Amazon has a program called Renewed, and it's something you really should check, especially the more expensive and the more kind of high end of an item you're buying, and especially like kitchen appliances, power tools, audio gear, networking gear, computer products, and again, the higher the higher quality, higher end, higher name brands, definitely you want to check with this. This can save you hundreds or maybe even thousands of dollars a year. Just by, I'm going to buy this thing. I'm going to buy a Milwaukee impact drill. Right? Just check and see if it's on renewed. And you might find that it's 50 bucks less or 100 bucks less or 70 bucks less. I mean, those are real numbers, especially as you get into more high dollar items. And, you know, if something that's normally 80 bucks, uh, you might get for 65. That's 15 bucks is 15 bucks. For instance, the, uh, the Logi, uh, web camera that I use for my streaming, my video streaming, that camera is like $169. I got mine on renewed for like $74.50. Okay. So here, I know what you're thinking, Jack, that renewed stuff, it's broke and they fixed it. Don't you understand? Like, that's what it is. It's been worn out and put back together. You're buying someone else's, like buying a used car. It isn't. It isn't. That is not what renewed products are. I just want you to think about this. I buy a drill from DeWalt. Turns out it's got a gremlin in it. Something's wrong with it. The motor burns up. It's under the warranty. I send it back to Amazon. Do you think Amazon has people somewhere repairing drills? Repairing KitchenAid stand mixers? Repairing Nutri-Ninja uh, blenders? Repairing Logi web cameras? Do you really? Do you think it makes sense to fix a broken product like that and then try to sell it? Does that, does that model work for an Amazon? The answer is no, it does not. So what's going on here is Amazon, a long time ago, started selling all the product that got returned that they couldn't sell as new, and they just sold it in mass on pallets. They just put it on a big pallet, wrap it up with you know giant saran wrap, and then they'd sell it for twelve hundred bucks or four thousand bucks or whatever. They would they would look at it and say if all this at retail was ten grand, it's all worthless to us now. We'll sell it for twenty one hundred dollars, and people buy those pallets, go through them, figure it out, and then they sell those products back on Amazon as used. They sell them on eBay. They sell them on Etsy. They sell them wherever. I don't think Etsy does that because Etsy's got to be homemade. But any any marketplace they can find, they sell this. And people have run entire businesses off it. But this is the important part. Most people put it right back on Amazon, especially items that sell well on Amazon. And that's why you'll be like on Amazon and say, this is available for a lower price from other vendors used or something like that. And you'll see somebody selling you know used condition and whatever. And so doing this for years, Amazon's one of the most data-driven companies out there. So they were able to figure out, hey, here's a list of shit 
that as soon as one of these people gets one, pulls it off a pallet, and lists it, it sells really fast because it's high value. And like I mentioned, power tools, etc. Walk into a pawn shop and tell me how much DeWalt, Rigid, Milwaukee you see. All of it. You know why? Because the pawn shop owner knows if I take this product in, it will sell, even if it's beat to shit. Well, if you have a brand new $300 power tool that's a name brand and you have it for sale for $229, somebody's going to buy it, especially if you have Amazon's reach. So they made this classification and they cherry pick all the returns now. And all they're doing is putting them back in the box, maybe getting an, like a cord was missing, so you get that accessory and you throw it in the box, and then they're reselling it themselves instead of putting them in those, those pallets. So what that means is that these products are basically brand new. Nobody rebuilds a drill that's been used for six months. Nobody does that. It's not financially viable as a business model at scale. So it's all brand new stuff. And you just got to check. Whenever you're buying anything, just check the Amazon Renewed store. There are a few gotchas. Everything's written up in the article today. If you go by the website and scroll down, you'll find tip for Amazon shopping. Check the Renewed store. Check that out because there are some gotchas you need to be aware of. But with that armed alongside you, there's no reason someone that buys a significant amount, especially of high-quality merchandise, again, electronics, computers, communications, power tools, stuff like that every year, kitchen gear, can't save a ton of money, and there's no sacrificing of quality. With that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up with both the song of the day and the quote of the day. The quote of the day, again, was by James Baldwin. People are trapped in history, and hip history is trapped in them. Today I talked about the potential for the United States to, in you know the near to midterm future, experience a breakup or a collapse on, the, on par with what happened in the Soviet Union in the 1980s and 1990s. I should say, you know, like a four-year period in there really is where it all kind of came together. And what I said is, you know, if you were sitting in 1987 as a Soviet citizen, a Soviet citizen in like Lithuania or Estonia that, that made out pretty well in this, and you said, you know what, it won't be that long, a few years, Estonia, Lithuania, Ukraine, etc., will be a sovereign nation, free from the shackles of the Soviet Union. The Berlin Wall will come down. Germany will be a reunited nation. The Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe will be gone. They wouldn't have believed you. And if you'd have said that to somebody in America, and you know, I was in high school back then, so I wasn't paying super attention, but I didn't know what was going on. I wouldn't have believed you either. And then... I went off and joined the Army. I was gone from uh, 1990 through 93, basically. And that was when everything happened. That's when everything fell apart. And we heard about it, sort of. I spent most of my time overseas. That, that kind of sheltered us more from it. And when I got out of the Army, even though I knew it had happened, it, it wasn't real to me. That's how, that's how strange this was that this would even happen. And it was the first Olympics that I watched after getting out of the military and seeing athletes like a gymnast or a skater or whatever from you know Ukraine or Lithuania and Russia, not 
the Soviet Union. And it was like, oh my God, the world has changed. It was so amazing that it happened. It was so unbelievable that it would happen. And even after it did happen, it hadn't fully set in if you weren't directly affected by it yet. I'm sure if you were in Lithuania, you, you that was not surprising to see the Olympics like that. I remember coming home, and one of my uncles had gone to Germany during all of this, and there were four big hunks of the Berlin Wall sitting on one of the bookshelves at my grandmother's house. And I'm sure he would have let me take one. I didn't. I didn't. I was living in history. I was looking at history. And it wasn't real to me because I was still, you know, just coming out of the military, we were still training to fight the the, the Russians as the Soviets, even though they weren't there anymore. Because even though the military had figured that out, it's not like the people in command didn't know this, the training was in place and they didn't come up with anything new yet. So our tactics, our threat identification cards, all of that stuff was still geared toward the Cold War. I was in history, trapped in history, and trapped by history. And we have to remember that we always carry that history still trapped within us. And our perspective changes, but... It changes sometimes in ways that we really lose sight of how it wasn't that long ago or maybe how it was longer ago than we feel like it. And what I mean by that is, in 1985, when I was a teenager, if you told me the date 1965, I wasn't even born yet. It seemed like forever ago. I mean, it just seemed like, wow, that's like... So if you start talking about, like, President Nixon even, you know, like, whatever, man, you know. Vietnam War seemed like forever ago. You know, I mean, didn't really understand 20 years isn't that far ago. And then if you think of, like, 1985 to 2005 being the same spread. 2005, 1985 didn't seem at all that long ago to me. It took me to then to realize, you know, how the adults around me in 85 felt about 65. And I have to tell you today, 1985 seems closer to me in 2021 than 1965 seemed to me in 1985. And mathematically, that's preposterous. But I think everybody that lives through history learns this or feels this way. If you're about 50 years old like I am, I guarantee you 1990 just doesn't seem that long ago. Even 1985 doesn't seem that long ago. you got to remember that dealing with some of these young people too. They don't have the time perspective. They haven't gained it yet. Now, it might seem weird then that I picked this song from John Lennon. It's called Watching the Wheels. This is the last John Lennon song ever released. Like, major release of a song. And it was released posthumously after he passed away. It was the third song released like that. And again, it was the last one. And it was released in 1981. 
1981. And I think about this, and I remember that when John Lennon was killed, I was such a little kid. My mother told me about it. And she said, you know the Beatles that are on the wall in the living room? I had no idea what she was talking about. I wasn't really paying attention. Again, I was a little kid at this point. And I said, yeah, just so whatever, you'll stop talking. And she said, one of them got shot last night. And I swear to God, and with the innocence of a child, I said, I didn't hear anything get shot last night. She goes, no, the Beatles, the four guys. I'm like, oh. And she had to explain to me what it even was. And it still doesn't seem that long ago. We are trapped in history, and history is trapped in us. And the future is incredibly uncertain. It really is. But what we think can't happen probably can, and that means we need to be prepared for everything. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. People say I'm crazy Doing what I'm doing Well, they give me all kinds of warnings To save me from ruin When I say that I'm okay Well, they look at me kind of strange
Just had to.